Al Jazeera podcast. In the U.S., former President Donald Trump's legal woes have taken over the headlines. Today, a U.S. federal judge set a March 2024 trial date on charges he's facing in Washington, D.C. Trump is facing so much in the way of legal issues, but many believe this is the most important case. Last week, in the state of Georgia, Trump turned himself in on similar charges at the state level. Obviously, this is the fourth time that the former president has gone through something like this, his fourth criminal case. But this is the first time that he's had to, uh, well, go in and be booked like this and have a mugshot taken. So what are Trump's chances in all of these cases? I don't think Giuliani would testify against Trump. I don't think Meadows would. I don't think Eastman would. But I think there's a lot of people, the lower level people, and I think they'll make their way to the prosecutor's office. We hear from a defense attorney with experience working on cases connected to January 6th. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Heather Shainer. I am a court-appointed federal public defender in Washington, D.C., and we're here to talk about January 6th. I caught up with Heather on a day when she wasn't in court. She's probably not what you might imagine when you think of a court-appointed federal defense attorney. Her brightly colored hair and chunky jewelry stands out. Outside of the courtroom, she's got strong opinions about Donald Trump and his supporters. But she says she's committed to defending them. So we're going to talk about today, but to do that, we need to go back to a time that not many of us want to go back to. Do you remember what you were doing on January 6, 2021? I do. I was sitting in my office on my computer um, telephone rang and it was a friend of mine who's also a neighbor and she said are you watching tv and I said Katie I don't have a tv she (laughs) said I think you need to come over and I said I'm working and she said you gotta see this I said okay and I went next door two houses down and stayed there for the next six hours all of us initially we're just sitting there crying. Mm-hmm. It was horrible, and none of us could believe what we were seeing. Heather was glued to the TV, but she was also watching with an attorney's eye. I was fascinated by the idiocy of the people inside the Capitol and on the Capitol grounds creating evidence against themselves in their cell phones. They were all sending messages and taking videos and speaking. And everywhere they went on Capitol grounds in the Capitol, they could be located by their cell phone. As a defense attorney who has seen so many cases where people are convicted by what the police pull off their own cell phones, I was hysterical because I said, well, here you go. Easy cases. Easy peasy, right? 
Did it cross your mind at the time that you might end up representing some Hell. of those people? <laughs> Hell is totally fine. Hell, okay. Hell no. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to represent any of those horrible, horrible imbeciles until I did. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you have to tell us that story. How did you come to represent some of the people charged with entering the U.S. Capitol that day? Very soon after, I was called by the federal defender and they said, Heather, can you come to court tomorrow? And I said, okay. And I got my first appointment and I told them, look, I don't want anyone who's charged with assaulting a police officer and I don't want anyone who destroyed property in the Capitol. So... I'm willing to take low-level cases, misdemeanor cases. So about how many people have you represented or are representing still? About 30. And they've been charged with crimes relating to January 6th. I know that you've had an unorthodox approach to some of your clients that's gained a lot of attention you uh, give books or, or reading lists, suggest books for them to read, not necessarily homework, but ones that, you know, you think of that could help them. Does it work? To be fair, the majority of the people I've represented are individuals who are charged with going into the Capitol, walking around, not creating chaos and leaving. Mm. All of them were Trump supporters, all, except for one who just came for the party. Silence your voices. We're not going to let it happen. They thought, oh, let's go. It's going to be wild. Um, The majority of my clients are middle-aged white Americans who live in rural areas of the Midwest, upstate New York, Tennessee, Pennsylvania, and they watched only right-wing television, listened to right-wing radio, had a skewed concept of what happened at the election. And they came to Washington. A lot of them were rounded up and put on buses that were paid for, Hmm. especially in Pennsylvania and New York. People were put on buses at their churches, at, at different places, and said, come on, You have to go show your support. Those people, once they were contacted by the FBI, were open to learning. Word of Heather's approach got out, and eventually it was featured in the news. In fact, I had five or six people who, after they read the article in the Washington Post, called me on the phone because they wanted to learn. Hmm. And I started out with the Constitution and the amendments to the Constitution, and I asked them to read that. And it was a first for most of them. Almost none of them had ever studied civics. I gave them more recent books. Um, John Lewis wrote very good books about the right to vote. I gave them um, books about the Holocaust. I gave them books about Native Americans. And I gave them an opportunity to think about 
how important it is to have a free press. Yeah. And most of my clients liked the readings mm -hmm. and would discuss them with me and write book reports for the judges. So if there's any benefit for my having done that, it's for people to have the opportunity to educate themselves in order to move forward in their lives and hopefully reduce their sentences. Hmm. Wow. Um, so I want to broaden this out and talk about the big picture now, because, as you mentioned, many of the people that you are representing are what would be considered low-level offenders, in a sense. 99% of them. 99%. This is all connected, though, to something much bigger, to what's happening now, which is that Donald Trump is actually facing state and federal charges for attempting to overturn an election. What is the connection? The government is finally, finally going after the people who created the events of January 6th. It wasn't a natural uprising of, like, this was something that was created, and it was created to, I believe, created intentionally. After representing some of the people that you are representing, how does it feel then to see Trump indicted for his role in what happened? Hallelujah. <laughs> I have a few clients who will stand by Trump and love him. A young kid down in Tennessee, he still thinks Trump is a gift of God. He's already had to do community service and has been on probation. He drank the Kool-Aid. The majority of my clients were not very political. The more political they were, the more they are so thrilled that Trump and others have finally been arrested. After the break, a look at the different indictments Trump is facing and his legal chances. Frida Kahlo was a master of self-portraits. Her uncompromising oil paintings, always deeply personal, dealt with identity, the human body, and death. It wasn't until after her own death that she was regarded as a revolutionary artist. In hindsight, it's easy to see how the two Fridas can be reconciled into one extraordinary woman. I'm Charles Stance. Follow me as I follow the life of Frida Kahlo in Al Jazeera's docudrama series, Hindsight. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So... Heather, let's review some of the indictments that Donald Trump is currently facing, just so everyone's on the same page, myself included, because it can be hard to keep up. There's the federal charges in the case to overturn the 2020 presidential election, and he's the only one charged in that. And then there are the state-level cases. And the one making headlines in the last few days is related to election interference in the state of Georgia. Today, in that federal case, a judge set a trial date of March 2024 in Washington, D.C. What do you think of these cases? The main difference between, well, not the main difference, but a difference between the state cases and the federal cases, a president of the United States, a future president of the United States, can only issue pardons 
for federal crimes. So should there come a time when an individual would want to pardon someone convicted of a, a crime that would not relate to the cases in New York City or the cases in Georgia? So a pardon could only be issued should there be a conviction in Florida or in Washington, D.C. Heather explained another key difference. In the federal case in D.C., focusing on overturning the election, Trump is the only one charged. That's led by special counsel Jack Smith. In Georgia, that election interference case is sprawling in comparison. And that affects the timeline. In a sweeping nearly 100-page indictment, former President Donald Trump, the leading candidate for the 2024 Republican nomination, was indicted for trying to overturn his loss to Joe Biden in Georgia in the last election. 18 others also indicted, including Trump's former personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, and his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. It is very difficult for a deputy of the court to coordinate 14 or 15 individual calendars to set a hearing date for a half an hour status. Imagine how impossible it is to set a trial date of maybe four weeks to pick a jury, maybe three months to present the evidence, and have 19 individual lawyers prepared and available to go for those four months. Imagine when there's conflicts between the defenses that require hearings on whether the cases need to be severed or separated. Imagine the number of legal motions that would be filed by 19 individual lawyers on behalf of their clients. Now look at a case in Washington that's discreet. A federal grand jury has voted to indict the former president for his attempt to overturn the results of an election he lost, up to and including his role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The evidence is essentially laid out in the very specific indictment that Jack Smith presented. A lawyer for Donald Trump could not come in and say, I need a bill of particulars because I don't know what my client's being charged with, because that indictment is very specific and easy to read, whether you're a lawyer or not. The charges are so narrow and so carefully laid out that it would be difficult for Donald Trump's lawyer to say, we need more months to review this evidence because they've had it. And a lot of it is public knowledge. And I think it was very smart of Jack Smith to do a narrow indictment, to not charge Trump with sedition, to not charge him with treason, because those are charges that are more difficult to prove beyond a reasonable doubt at a trial. And the rule of a good prosecutor and a good indictment is never to charge anything that you don't have proof in your pocket. Mm. And in the case of this indictment, I think they already have proof 
that would satisfy beyond a reasonable doubt any, any judge or any jury. Do you think any of these cases have a chance? Is there one that you think is most likely to succeed? Oh, I think Trump could be convicted of the indictment in Washington. If they could ever seat a jury, I think he could be convicted. (laughs) Now, given I have a strong bias on law and order, and I think that if you're in public office, you should be held to a higher standard than my poor, uneducated client on the street. And that doesn't often happen because usually the higher up you go, the, the lesser chance there is you'll ever be charged with anything. But I think in this case, there's a good possibility that there's enough evidence that a jury of 12, if they follow the judge's instructions, would have to convict Trump of something in each of those courts. I just have one final question. Um, earlier, you mentioned your more creative approaches to your work and your clients. And while many people appreciated that, we talked about it, others called you a traitor, you received hate mail. Um, when you look back on it, on accepting the cases and the work that you're doing now, would you have done anything differently? Probably not. I've made a lot of friends among my clients. I think I've managed to help a lot of people throughout the United States. And overall, I've gotten a lot more thanks and beautiful letters and phone calls from Alaska to Maine, from people saying thank you, thank you, thank you. So although there were a few threats and calls that scared me, because my name and phone number and address are all over the world. I think it's been a good experience for me. I've gotten boxes of cherry jam and blueberry jam. As a thank you? Yes, as a thank you from clients, which Mm -hmm. make my breakfasts more pleasant. (laughs) That's lovely. Um, Heather, thank you so much. This was a pleasant conversation. And it's a pleasure meeting you. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by David Enders and Ashish Malhotra, with Amy Walters, Sonia Bagat, Chloe K. Lee, Miranda Lynn, Khalid Sultan, Ferenisa Campana, Zaina Badr, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Tim St. Clair mixed this episode. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>